Hello, Tisha. Hi, Jen. How are you doing? <sighs> Listen, other than like everything falling apart in the last week, fine, good, great. <laughs> that whole being a teacher end of the school year, there's like a push that I feel like is different than for the parents of the students. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I shouldn't say much. everything's been falling apart, but yeah, work is a little hectic because it's like report card time. And then my house was struck by lightning, which meant that in the last week I've dealt with like trying to get cable back, trying to get internet back, trying to get a new television and a new soundbar and a lamp that broke and the hot water tank stopped working. And, you know, I was hosting 12, basically seven-year-olds for my daughter's birthday. I'm thinking, why am I hosting 12 children in my house when I have no hot water? Anyways, I survived somehow, some way. And I bought a lottery ticket today because I figure... Good things are coming. They have to be coming, right? I think that's coming. Of, yeah. I legit bought a lottery ticket today. I mean, I think a lottery ticket purchase is wise. And something else really huge happened last week that I don't even know if you know happened. I don't Maybe think so. Know. I don't think so. I had a follow up with my oncologist and I continue to be cancer free. Yes. And so that marks three and a half years for me. That's huge. Yeah, that is huge. That's so like huge. that was happening, but I had no cable or internet. And then like my kid's school went on lockdown because there was a shooting in the area. It was just a crazy week last week, which is insane. It was. But here I am. <laughs> now we should, it is important to note for you listeners who are not in our like neighborhood, there was a shooting in the area, but it was by police. Yeah. And it was not in the same way that the recent Texas shooting was, and it doesn't make it less scary because schools were put on lockdown. But when it comes to those kinds of events, I do think we well, are privileged here in Canada just because of the oh, of accessibility of those kinds of weapons. And I think, you know what, the Texas shooting had happened maybe two days prior. Two days prior. And then I get a message that my child's school is in lockdown because there was a gunman, a person, a gunman wandering outside of a school, which is terrifying. Yeah. There was literally, I would say like probably like 15 minutes between me finding out my kids were in lockdown and then finding out that the police had shot him. Mm -hmm. um, and it turned out, of course, that he had a pellet gun. So that's fun. But I feel like just we have enough terrifying 15 minutes. Terrifying. And of course, what happened in Texas is going through my mind and you're thinking, oh, is this going to be a copycat type situation? Yep. Because it could happen. And we are privileged that it really in Canada is very uncommon. I think mainly because of the inaccessibility of the types of weapons that. Well, this is why somebody was wandering around with a pellet gun, because right. maybe if they were able to get something an else, actual they rifle, they right. may have. Right. Um, and we shouldn't laugh about it, but that's the, that's the truth of the matter. It is. Well, and we just have enough of a, a U.S. listenership that I just mm -hmm. wanted to clarify. Again, not that it wasn't scary, not that we don't take it seriously, but it was definitely not at the level of recent happenings in the U.S. No, no. And on a, I don't know if it's just 
backtracking to when teacher's house got struck by lightning, I actually was out of power for 36 hours, which Yeah. I was essentially okay with, but Logan, my eldest, like literally thought it was like a personal attack on us because on our little court, we were the only ones without it. If you keep Oh going no. down the street and around the corner, those people did not have power. But on our little, Right. you know, 14 house court, we were the only ones without it. And like this nine-year-old So guy somehow is you're on the grid for the street kind of adjacent to you. This nine-year-old really took it as like a personal attack. And why aren't they trying to fix it? Meanwhile, there were like people's houses got struck by lightning. There were, there were streetlights, signals, traffic signals that were still out 24 hours later. It was this crazy like freak 20-minute storm that terrorized Southern Ontario basically. Yes, it's crazy. I saw tons of pictures of people with like trees through their homes and Yeah, it was crazy. Well, <laughs> yeah. we, what the, the source of ours was that a tree fell down, bringing down power lines and it fell onto a car that had people in it that thankfully nobody was hurt. Oh, wow. But I think because of, you know, traffic lights on major roads were out. I think they just turned off any power that drew from there and Yes. went to go fix more pressing things, Yeah. which, you know, That we, kind of makes sense. I mean, that's just, you know, me guessing. I don't really have a clue. Yeah. But we were fortunate enough that friends across the street were out of town and we got to hang with other people and it was fine. But the, the personal affront that it was to my nine-year-old was somewhat amusing. And it didn't help that his brother got to have a sleepover at a friend's house who did have power. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. No, that's an extra burn. Like, I feel that in my soul for him. Um. <laughs> you know what? He could have had a sleepover at someone else's house, but he's not really that kid. <laughs> okay. Okay. We're not there yet. I don't know if you saw, but our guest uh, this week is graduating from Brown University. Actually, I don't know if she's graduating, but she recited the very first land acknowledgement in Brown University's history at their baccalaureate assembly. Okay, so I saw that she gave a speech there, and Yep. but I didn't know that it was like the very first land acknowledgement. It was So the that's, inaugural land that's acknowledgement. pretty amazing. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I have to say that when we recorded this episode, I was so sick, like so sick. And I think you might even hear me like coughing and sneezing during the episode, but I, I got off. after we recorded it and I walked into the room where my husband was and I was like I am a better person like that is how I felt that is exactly what I said I'm like I just in that hour and a half became a better person because I have met Charente Charente that is is, actually how I felt yeah, well, and it's funny, I remember before I even started editing it, you were like, oh, God, I barely remember that. I was so sick. And I'm listening to it, and I'm like, she is, like, on it and extremely insightful for somebody who is, like, looking back and saying how sick she was. But Charente, she was just amazing. And we will actually have a conversation about pronouns at the beginning of the episode because Charente is two-spirit. So, so they're our first two-spirit person that we've had on the show which I think is really cool and Yeah. it's funny to me that Tisha found them because their tribe and their people are, are from where I'm from 
like they're the indigenous people to the region in the in New England where close to where I'm from so it was doubly interesting to me because I learned a lot about stuff that I kind of feel like I should have known but definitely was not in the history books that I learned from as a student yeah I just I mean okay guys just listen to this episode and you'll see what I mean because yeah wow and actually, I'm going to yeah. post on our Patreon on Carling's episode, which is amazing. And Ooh. yeah, that's going to happen on Thursday. So you should go to Patreon and listen to that. And you should also check out our merch, rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, guys. Most of you listen on Apple Podcasts. And even if you don't, if you have an iPhone, if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, that is huge. It makes our day. I guess this is releasing at the 1st of June, but we're recording this intro in May. And so it's still my birthday month. So you can give it to me for my birthday present like I asked you last (laughs) week. And listen to every word of this episode, and I hope you really enjoy it. Hi, and welcome back to the Now Up Pod. I'm Jen. And I'm Tisha. Today, we are going to be joined by Sharente. Did I say that correctly? Yes. All right. You did much better than many do. (laughs) All right. Awesome. And we found Sharente on Instagram. And we invited them here to share their story. And one of the things I think that's interesting is that on our podcast, we have only ever had women or female identifying people that we've interviewed. And today we're going to interview uh, Sharente, who identifies as Two-Spirit. Do you prefer he or she or they? Welcome, Sharente. Welcome right back to you. I said in my native language, hello, my friends. My name is Sharente. I am a citizen of the Narragansett Nation. We are the only tribe in Rhode Island, and we are a federally recognized nation. The Narragansett people traditionally were the most powerful and most numerous people in southern New England. And the tribes surrounding us, the Nipmuc, the Wampanoag, the Manasseans, even tribes on Long Island, they all were tributary tribes of the Narragansett. I descend from the house of Ninigrit, which is tied to our sachemdom, our leaders. And I, being two-spirit, I welcome any and all pronouns. In our traditional language, all of our pronouns are gender neutral. And so instead of he, she, or it, we simply have the pronoun iwo. In my language, I might describe myself as Nisa Manatuak, Two-Spirit, or Nowa Ashpa, he who is effeminate, or simply someone who is Nashawi, in between. As a Two-Spirit person, I live a strange existence today. Two-Spirit is a contemporary term that acts as an umbrella term for Native people who are in the LGBT community. And we're unified by that term because across Turtle Island, what we now call America, Native peoples 
had traditions of not only acceptance, but respect towards the LGBT people in their community. So being Two-Spirit traditionally is a sacred role. Unfortunately, because of the forces of colonization and forced assimilation, indigenous people in many communities today are still dealing with that trauma. And that trauma also came with homophobia and transphobia that had our community turn on some of, some of our weakest members who were the most ostracized and alienated by the colonial world. So my goal in everything that I do is to help my people to heal. And that only can be done by having more people know the name of our people, the Narragansett, the issues we're dealing with today. Mm -hmm. And if we can help our community to heal, then we can help our two-spirit people in our community. And we can decolonize and remember how to love our two-spirit relations and see what an important role they can still serve in our families and our communities. That is such an interesting explanation. I'm going way back to the beginning because you were talking about how in your language, there's not like male or female pronouns. And I'm an old lady now, but <laughs> when I was in university, like 20 years ago, I had this professor and she made the argument that gender is the most important social construct in our society. And we were like, what? Because you could also argue that it's sexuality. You could argue that it's race. You could argue that it's all these other social constructs that we have. <laughs> and the argument she said is that we have these pronouns. We use he and she. So immediately we stereotype people. We put them in these little boxes of he or she before anything else. It's just inter like when you said that, I was like, oh, that's interesting because there are languages that exist that don't do that. As you said, we don't label people in that way, but in English, that's very, very important what your gender is. And even in the romance languages, everything yeah. is, you know, either there's yeah. the feminine and the masculine genders in the language. Yes. And in our yeah. language, we have, two genders in our language that things are gendered, but it's not feminine and masculine. It's animate and inanimate. Okay. And so the way that you conjugate words to make them plural changes depending on whether it's considered animate or inanimate, as opposed to whether it's masculine or feminine. If you took that argument, then that's like saying in, in your culture, in your language, whether you're animate or inanimate is most important. Mm, mm. I don't know. It was an interesting argument and obviously it stuck with me. And even the way that we think about it in maybe a modern context is very different from how our ancestors thought about it because stars, for instance, we say anakwasag, the stars, and that's conjugated as animate beings. Um, the stars are treated as animate. Even Kunam, which is our word for spoon, 
the spoon that feeds us. And spoons were so important to our people that we would carry spoons around with us when we go to a neighbor's house to eat. And spoons are treated as animate objects. So it's a very different sense than we might have today, the, the worldview. Mm-hmm. So when you were growing up, did you identify as two-spirit always? Or is that something that you came to? Yes. Yeah, so as a child, I uh, did not identify as two-spirit. It was something that when I came out to my family, that was... I feel very blessed, actually, in this respect, that most people, when they come out to their family, the biggest fear is always that they will be treated differently afterwards. And usually they will be treated different, but in the good cases, all for the better, they'll be treated differently, but more authentically, and it will be a better relationship. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that's not always the case. I feel really blessed that not only was I accepted, but there was something there that my family was able to give back to me and you know that there is a space for me that our people have known about and have you know this is how we've lived for time immemorial Mm -hmm. and to have a family that is in touch with our traditional way in spite of attempted genocide of our people is a tremendous gift. Our two-spirit traditionally were mediators, mediators between the men and the women, and were revered because they embodied the interconnectivity between all of creation. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense in our worldview for us to be homophobic or transphobic because something that is central to our worldview is that we are all relations. In our language, we say, Wami Natang all my beloved relations. And when we say that, we're not just talking about ourselves or our family. We're talking about all of our four-legged relations, all animals, all of the trees and the plants, everything in this world, because we all share a same point of conception. We all are the children of Mother Earth. And because of that interconnectivity, that's something that we always need to remember and hold on to. So it's easy for us to kind of get lost in our individual everyday lives, to get lost in our jobs and our careers Mm -hmm. and our roles in society the titles that we're given, the names that we're given. And all of those things do have place and are part of the wild dance that is life. But it's important that we don't let those ways of thinking consume us or make us forget about that underlying truth that this is all an illusion. My separateness from my family, my separateness from the earth that birthed me, all of the things that surround me, 
is an illusion. And our two spirit people wake us up to that. And that's chiefly done through ceremony because it's one thing to know that we are all related and it's another thing to feel it through experience Mm -hmm. and all of our ceremonies even our dances are a form of ceremony and our dances where we all move in the same manner to the same rhythm that rhythm being the heartbeat of mother earth what we are doing is bringing ourselves as close as we can to remembering that feeling of oneness so that we may hopefully carry it with us when the time comes for us to ask one of our relations to give up part of themselves so that we may eat or we may build our homes when we take from the trees or from the waters, the fish, or from the woods, the deer, so that we may treat them with respect and as a relation in the way that the same sorrow and thankfulness that we would have if we had to give up part of ourselves when we take. And in that way, we have a a symbiotic relationship. I have found that in my journey as a two-spirit person, where I've been able to create the most change, changing the minds and the hearts of my community, is when they have seen me at my most vulnerable, at my most weak, and they've seen me in pain. And it's in those moments where those people that thought of me as a sort of adversary Mm -hmm. suddenly started to see a part of themselves within me. And with that, that bridge was formed connecting us and their ideas of who I was, you know, a queer or whatever else all of those sorts of labels started to fall away and they saw me as a human being, as a relation. And we all know the stories of someone jumps on the train tracks to pull someone out of the way or they push someone out of the way of a car coming to hit them. And afterwards they're asked, why would you do such a crazy thing? And they don't even think about it. But something awakens in them. They feel it. And all they can say is they needed to save that person, that their life was just as valuable as their own. Because in that moment, there wasn't separation between them. There was that realization. That's such an interesting way of of putting it, like that there was no separation between themselves and the person that they pushed out of the way or they pulled up the train tracks or whatever because I've never really thought about that and you will often hear these stories and you'll hear people say like I didn't even think about it I just I just did it like it was almost instinctual mm. there was just something in them that didn't view that person as separate I suppose how are you able to achieve that like you said when you can show yourself to be vulnerable that when you can show yourself to have been in pain or have suffered. I'm wondering if you can be more specific about how you are able to communicate that. So I come from a family of champion powwow dancers. Powwows are intertribal events where native people come together uh, and celebrate 
today they have been influenced by an amalgamation of many different tribal traditions, but the Narragansett actually have the oldest recorded powwow in our nation's history. Of course, there are many other similar traditions that have been going on for time immemorial, but the Narragansett tribe has had our August meeting powwow recorded for over 300 years. And the word powwow actually in our language means a medicine person, powwow. And our medicine people were of great importance during these events because traditionally these were Thanksgivings. Our August meeting powwow, we give thanks for the harvest of the green corn. And we actually had Thanksgivings all throughout the year that correlated with the lunar calendar. I'm born in the moon of strawberries where we have our strawberry Thanksgiving in June. And at these powwows, one of the main things that we do is dance. And when we dance, we call the spirits into motion with us and we give thanks. So when we dance, it is always a prayer. And I've danced my entire life since I was in my mother's womb and she went out into the circle pregnant with me. And after coming out as two-spirit, I realized that I needed to dance in a style of dance that was authentic to who I was. Because in contemporary powwow, dances are categorized between men's dances and women's dances. Our, our traditional social dances, many of them are integrated between men and women, but most powwow competition dances are split. I decided that I would begin fancy shawl dancing, which is a women's style of dance that was created during the women's rights movement and is really a great example of how indigenous culture has continued to grow and change and evolve. And many people will go to powwows and I encourage everyone that's listening to go to a powwow as a guest. They are events that are usually open to the public and native people want you to come. Many times people will come to powwows and will think that we are reenacting something like we're doing a historical reenactment but we're not <laughs> doing a reenactment we are very much continuing our traditional ways and I realized that I needed to start fancy shawl dancing or else my prayer would be empty and meaningless I wouldn't really be giving thanks for who I am and what I have been given in this life so going out to dance in a women's style of dance when I am a very well-known person in our tribal communities was something that my family knew would immediately create a stir and upset. And sure enough, I was told that I needed to take off my number and that, you know, I wouldn't be allowed to compete with the other girls. And all of the other girls that were dancing with me were friends of mine, supported me through this. We, I've always been taught as a child that we don't go and dance for competition to win, that we go to give thanks. But today, 
a huge part of powwow is the competition. And I decided that I would go out and dance anyways. And at the end, I would have to take a walk of shame and walk off while all the other girls lined up to get judged. And this was this decision was made by a small minority of people. And it was usually old men that were the ones like making this decision. And it wasn't even a decision made by the judges. As time went on and powwow after powwow, this was happening, judges began to get very upset that they were not being given the choice to decide for themselves whether or not knowing of my situation, whether or not they wanted to you know, give me any points. And I was fine with not getting points or not winning. All I wanted was to be treated like anyone else, to not be treated like I was a foreign creature, for the judges to be able to make the decision for themselves, for us to just be able to dance without people getting in the way. And so this all reached a boiling point after a year of enduring, not only going out in a form of protest and dancing anyways, but people saying horrible things to me, even children telling me things that they overheard from their parents. And I feel so lucky because at the end of all of this, it it isn't really the end, but finally judges walked off because they were so upset that I, I was being discriminated against, I was being mistreated. And from that, there formed a protest And more and more people came and joined in this protest against the powwow committee that made this decision. And when I danced, people threw money at my feet and I was adopted by the Mystic River Drum Group and the drum groups came out and supported me. And overnight, the tribe that put on that powwow received so much backlash from people who were upset and like found out that this was going on that they formally apologized and sent a tribal council member to my home to apologize that this all had happened this doesn't mean that that's the end of this journey there Mm -hmm. is still so much more that needs to be done but i feel so empowered knowing that there is a community that supports me where before I thought there was none. And there are now new young native people who are going out and have seen me and what I'm doing and are making fancy shawl regalias of their own to dance or jingle dress regalias and have the courage now to be themselves and to be part of our traditional practices because so many two-spirit people feel discouraged from being part of these events because they feel like they don't have a place there. Right. Because when it's male or female and you don't fall in one of those categories, then you don't belong there. 
I was thinking, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, this idea that I guess really came about because of the colonizers that othered two-spirit people in a negative way. As far as the competition aspect of the powwow, because I actually have been a guest at a powwow before, just here, like locally at, at a school in our neighborhood, and there was no competition at that one. Is that like, what? what is the purpose of the competition? Because my understanding of powwow dances, and I, you've, t- you've kind of touched on it, is they're sacred. So was the competition something that also kind of came around from being colonized? Was it a way to, to raise funds for the tribes? You know, why is that being put on? There are many people today that still advocate for going back to, you know, traditional pabas before competition, before money, prizes, any of that. What I can say is competition is definitely a way to bring people into your powwow. But I think there might be a deeper connection here in that traditionally, the Narragansett people held Nokomos, which were great giveaways. Our people were noted by the colonists for our generosity to the point where our people would give away almost everything they had to the poor in our communities or even to strangers. The idea was that with this culture of generosity, no one will be poor or will be without. No one needs to worry about giving away too much because someone will always be able to help you in return. And I think my mother and my aunt and my grandmother talk about a time at our powwow where instead of prize money, people were given gifts. My mother received a small doll after dancing once that she she talks about or you might receive a little basket or and so I think that in many ways reflects our Nakomo tradition I said that when I danced people threw money at my feet and that is a huge part of giveaways today at powwows powwows are very expensive creating the regalias, getting the materials, driving to powwows, getting food, all of these things cost money. And so it's a way of honoring the dancers and helping them. Yeah. And you then could use that money to have your regalia made, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a way of showing the support of you. And it's interesting that people were showing you that support. Like it's very beautiful, even though you couldn't be judged and you weren't officially part of the competition to have the community reach out in that way really is special. Mm. And I can see how that could open people's eyes for others to see that and for other two spirits to see that as well, right? Do you think though, because you had said that your family is very well known because of your parents' involvement in the competitions, do you think it would have been different if it had been someone who was in a different family, like who was not as well known on the circuit? Do you think that would have been different? Do you think part of that contributed to your ultimate acceptance and even, you know, the growing almost protest around you? Absolutely. I think about it all the time 
how I think I've said it uh, multiple times at this point, how blessed I am. It was a blessing and a curse because my family is well respected in our tribal community, not just because of powwow dance, but my parents, when they were my age, they were giving dance classes, not just for our tribal community, but for other tribal communities, teaching the youth and whoever came how to dance in all of the different styles. And beyond that, my family is very active in our tribal community. My father was a environmental tribal police officer for a time for our tribe. And because we were so well known, all eyes were on me when I made this change. And so it wasn't like I could hide behind some kind of anonymity and people not know that I was too spirit and that I was doing this. It was all on display. And I do think also I'm very privileged because of that, in that so many people were willing to stand behind me. And I think it's really a testament to my parents and the way that they have raised me and my six siblings. If it was someone else that people didn't really know about, they could easily write it off and say, oh, they didn't raise their kids right and say all of these negative things. But because I'm, I'm Thawne and Eleanor's child, they can't say that. They know that my parents, you know, been in touch with our traditional ways and have helped so many in the community, even just making their regalias. There's so many a powwow. My father gets a call like the night before the powwow starts and they ask, oh, can you make regalias for all of my children? And oh my, my father can't say no. And oh, he says, of course. And they come over and he makes them all regale. That spirit of giving and generosity that comes back to you. And I feel so much pride to come from people like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there was a moment where you decided you were going to do the fancy shawl dance because that felt more aligned with who you are. And you're told that you're not going to be able to compete. And there's this moment where you make a decision that you're going to go out there anyways, and that you're going to do this walk of shame. And I'm curious about where you found that motivation or inspiration like how did you come to make the decision I'm going to go out there anyways well when it happened at first I was allowed to I was allowed to get a number I was wasn't stopped until right before it was time for me to go and dance and then they didn't even come to me. They came to my parents because they were too afraid to come and talk to me. And this was the common thread throughout everything that made me all the more frustrated and hurt was that 
I never had the opportunity to talk to them. And that's what they wanted to avoid was the seeing me as a human being in front of them and Mm. having to tell me this. There were powwows where I went on like wild chases across the entire powwow grounds trying to find a committee and they were evading me because they didn't want to talk to me. I think it comes from the people that I have been raised by and being Narragansett. If you look at Narragansett history, the Narragansett are a proud and mighty people. And unfortunately, even students in Rhode Island don't learn enough about Narragansett people, but I descend from our Sachem Dham, our, our traditional leaders. And one of our most famous Sachems is Kanachit, and he is known for burning down the city of Providence. Um, not there were not, this happened after the Narragansett were massacred in the Great Swamp. And this was not a massacre. Tons of people did not die. I I don't think anyone actually died from the burning of Providence, but it was a show of us reclaiming this land that was being taken and should not have been taken. And Kanachit was later captured. And when he was captured, he was given an ultimatum to either help the English and give up, be a traitor basically to his people or to die. And Kanache is quoted as saying, I shall like it well that I die before I have said a word that is unworthy of myself or before my heart has grown soft. And Kanache, was executed defending his people with the dream that I could be here one day, continuing the fight for our people to be seen, be heard. And so it is not in many Narragansett's nature to be a coward or to step down from Uh, a fight when it comes to standing up for our rights. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's my answer is that I am an emboldened Narragansett. I mean, you, you radiate pride in being Narragansett. It's, it's like, I can feel it from the screen. I got goosebumps listening to the, the story, like of like the burning of Providence and I don't remember his name. I'm sorry, but like, and Not what he shit. said, right about yeah. basically how he would rather die than turn his back on his people. Or... Yeah, and there are oh. so so many of our Narragansett leaders, again and again, do the same thing. They put everything mm-hmm. on the line when it would be so easy to turn into ally with the English. Mm-hmm. instead and it would have been so easy for me to just give up to you know cry and sit in the car not to face the embarrassment 
my battle is nothing compared to what my ancestors went through. And so the fact that what they did feels so present and near in my life as I walk each day on College Hill in Providence, where he wants step, it, it makes all of the things that I have to overcome, you know, seem easy in comparison. I have, I have the strength of my ancestors behind me always. I have their teachings. We talk about the seven generations and that when we make decisions, we don't just make those decisions for, you know, thinking of how it will affect the generation ahead of us. We think about how it will affect the next seven generations to come and how it will ripple in that way. And we also look behind us and we think, of the teachings of our ancestors seven generations back. And seven generations seems like a crazy long time, but I knew my great-grandparents and some of my great-grandparents are actually still alive. And I hope, and I feel pretty confident that I will one day know my great-grandchildren. And between my great-grandparents and my great-grandchildren, that would be seven generations. It does seem like such a long time, but it really is a drop in the bucket, right? Seven Absolutely. generations. It was, in, this is going back a ways now, but the people making the decision to not allow you to compete were men. And we have a running theme here <laughs> where it's always the patriarchy. It's, it is, it is. We it talk, is. We fuck the patriarchy. We talk, <laughs> two women and now two spirit pe people who are typically not respected in the same way as men typically white men is where it goes i would i would really imagine and hope that there aren't white men on the, the committee of powwows but <laughs> i'm sure they would try to be if you'd let them take that power they would <laughs> they would so it, it was just interesting to me to that we have this like thread that's still and like your story is is very different and your experience is very different from many of the people we've spoken with but there's always that part where it's like it's always about that and i think that's why we love everybody we get to speak with and sharing these stories because of the strength that you're exuding from the screen here and the strength that those of us who don't have the privilege of being a man or identifying as a man have. We mm -hmm. don't have that privilege, right? And I'm just really struck also by your story because you have this rich history your sense of your history and your ancestors is just it's really inspiring it's really amazing i i love hearing you talk about it and it's it's interesting to speak to you as a two-spirit person because they were revered in your history and then it was this stretch of time where you're now fighting still to be accepted and that's that's mm -hmm. wild to me but then also beautiful that you not only have the love of your family, but it sounds like a lot of your community is so supportive of you. And you're like, what, 21? Younger? Older? Yes, 21. I always accidentally lie about my age uh, and people have to say <laughs> Whatever. Right. You're, a lot, you're a lot younger than us. You're a lot <laughs> younger than us. 
And it's just really, in, but it's amazing yeah. to see you using the strength and the power that you have as a Narragansett from your family, your immediate family, from your ancestors to actually make this change, you know, these changes and to make yourself visible for other two spirits. I'm just kind of blown away with it. I don't have a question. Oh my goodness. Like, I've been sitting here listening <laughs> to you and it's, I feel really fortunate to be able to be listening to you right now, to be honest. Thank yeah. You. We've learned, like, I feel like you've taught us so much about what it means to be two spirit, but also just so much about your culture that, well, it's so rich and it's so beautiful. And as you said, even students who are in Rhode Island don't know about it. I'm Canadian. I live in Canada. I grew up in Canada. And so I don't believe we had Narragansett people here, but we had Indigenous people. You'd be surprised. There are Narragansett people all over the globe and people will always be shocked when they find a Narragansett. But yes, <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. I was educated in Massachusetts from the age of 10 through high school and went to university in Connecticut. And I don't think I ever learned about the Narragansett. Long Did you ever hear about the burning of Providence? No, I only knew about King Philip and that's because his head was on the school, the high school in my town, like the regional oh my school that I was supposed to go to. I don't recall ever I, I truly I don't I know more about the indigenous Canadians from my nine-year-old and what he's learning in school now living in Canada than I did when I grew up mm. and and see uh, Medicom or King Philip he is of course the sachem of the Wampanoag that was famous for starting uh King Philip's war rebelling against the English and all of the awful things that they were doing. And the Wampanoag being a tributary tribe under the Narragansett, the Narragansett are famous for saying that the English tell them basically to give up the Wampanoags that we are giving refuge to the women and children who we do not consider as needing to even take part in all of this war, the elderly, the sick, they are all being given refuge and the English tell the Narragansett to give them up and the Narragansett say, we will not give up a Wampanoag nor the pairing of a Wampanoag's nail. And that is astounding. And yeah. it's such important history mm -hmm. when we think about, I mean, King Philip's War was like the bloodiest war per capita at that time. But it, it is like a huge part of American history. The stories that you're telling us about your history and your ancestors is the reason that you're still here today and that your culture is still here today and alive because if the English had its way, they would have wiped you out completely. Like, let's mm. be real, right? And so you needed that. And you can see that idea that you said in your culture about thinking about seven generations from now, right? That those people were not just thinking about themselves. These leaders were not just thinking about themselves. They were thinking about seven generations from now. Mm. And how do we fight against these atrocities that are happening? so that we can continue to 
have descendants in seven generations from now. And so when you say that you're a strong people, you would be, right? Because you would have been descended from all of those people. Well, and the idea of being mindful of seven generations, I think, relates to this idea that I think we're only really starting to understand now of generational trauma. So it's just Mm. the same idea that you have impact generationally with the choices Mm -hmm. you make as a people, as a society, as a community. Yeah. And that's really, but it doesn't just have to be from a trauma standpoint. It can be positive as well. The fact that we are invisible in your history books in school is not a mistake. The fact that you only learn about Native people with the first Thanksgiving, the fact that students, when they learn about Native Americans, they usually learn about what the Natives ate corn, bean, and squash, those kinds of things. The reason why they learned that is because that segues into what did the natives have to offer the pilgrims and friendship? They taught them how to live off the land and what foods to eat. And so a whole narrative is spun, framing this in the context of friend, as opposed to the reality of what it was. But I think about, you know, my ancestors in foods. One of our leaders, my antinomy, gives a long speech talking about how our waters were full of fish and our woods of turkeys. And if we don't act soon, we will all be starved because the English are allowing their pigs to come and destroy all of our crops and digging up our clam beds. And during that time, our people could not do anything about it or else we would be forced to go to the colonist court and be tried unfairly. And we never were able to take Englishmen into our court of law and try them for the things that they were doing in our territory. And to what you were saying about women and being stopped by men. Our people are traditionally a matrilineal society, a matrilocal society. Our women are the backbones of our communities. And I am so proud that I have two strong Narragansett grandmothers. When we even think about like our people in courtship, today you take the last name of your husband And for our people, you join your wife's clan and the woman makes the proposal to and decides who she wants as a husband, not the husband choosing a wife. I like that. So, I mean, just a complete in almost every sense flip in worldview. And from what I see, all for the better. And that's why I think I like to speak so much about Narragansett people and culture because we're one of the earliest people of contact. Verrazano in the 1500s was, I I believe, one of the first colonists to record his journey to North America. And among the places he visits, he stops in the Narragansett Bay and he writes that these are the most beautiful people on this voyage that he has seen and that their manners and their way of life 
is so civilized and graceful and they're so generous. They give away all that they can, that they're elderly, live to a long age, and that old age takes them in the end, that they are rarely sick. He talks about how tall we are and how fit we are. And, you know, when I think about, if I was given the opportunity right now to go back and live in a traditional way, to be back the way my people once lived, I would do it in a heartbeat. There is so much that we can take from our teachings. And not that I think that non-Native people should appropriate our traditions because our traditions are specific to this place and it doesn't make sense to try and take our regionally specific traditions and try and put them other places. But there are some fundamental truths that our people knew way back then and still mm -hmm. carry with us now that mm -hmm. I think all people can benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. And I have often thought like, imagine if there was a world where the English had come here and adopted the values of the people that they met instead of what actually happened and the ways in which our world would be different if it mm. was based on a different set of values. It's just interesting to think about, right? Because that's- well, And I wonder because yeah. it was the English coming from a society that was not matrilineal, you have to mm -hmm. wonder if that was one of the ways that felt threatening and wrong to them because they yeah. were so happy and they were so amazing and they had these people were running from a life that they didn't love so you would think they would be more open to something that was different but they were yeah. scared of it probably is really the reality of it uh, absolutely i mean we frame it in the, the lens of, you know, the pilgrims left for religious freedom and all of this. And I mean, these Puritans, they left because they were kind of extremists. I mean, Roger Williams questioned even like his own wife's true faith in the Lord. And I mean, these people in their worldview could not be more different from us. I even think about our children. In our culture, our children were spoiled uh, because we have traditional stories where we talk about, you know, how easily our children can be taken from us. And like our elderly, they are still close to that transitory period. They just entered into this world and they so quickly can be taken back out. But the, the pilgrims, they had their children, while they sat in chairs, their children had to stand while they ate and like didn't get the same nice treatment that the adults had. And they were such religious extremists that even Roger Williams was kicked out of Massachusetts Bay Colony because he didn't ascribe to their particular type of faith. And our ancestors, the Narragansett, we oftentimes, when Europeans were trying to proselytize and convert us, we would say, peace, hold your peace, that having this tolerance and openness for other people, having their own faiths, 
and none of that being an issue for us. What I can't stress enough is that the English themselves, like all people across the globe, once did live just like us. They once wore feathers in their hair. They once lived in close proximity to the land and saw it as a relation, as opposed to seeing the earth and their bodies as, and the world as something derogatory or sick or evil or impure and needing to have distance from the world or from the beasts and needing to have dominion over it and controlling it as opposed to making peace with it and having mm -hmm. respect for it. I could go on and on. I love it. <laughs> I really appreciate your time and you taking the time mm -hmm. in finals week of your two degrees that you're doing right now. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> We, I mean, I, we often ask people what, what you hope somebody will take away from hearing your story. And I feel like you've given us like all these different answers <laughs> and things to, to take away from it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have anything else to add, but it really has been a pleasure hearing your story. And like I said yeah. before, the pride that you have is really, truly wonderful. I'm so, so glad. If anything that I would add just at the end, and I know we're probably way over time, I can't help but think of all of the Narragansett people that have fought for the same goal of visibility. And it's visibility of both our struggles today, many of them being legal injustices, hate crimes in my own family and many other tribal families that no justice is found, but also the success stories and, you know, all of the ways that our people are thriving. Our communities should know about all of this. And it was just recently, I think it might have just passed the Boston Marathon. And the Boston Marathon is a point of pride for the Narragansett people because my great uncle is Ellison Tarzan Brown who won the Boston Marathon twice. And he went to the Olympic Games in Berlin under Nazi rule, representing the Narragansett people and representing the United States and put our name on a global stage. And unfortunately, Ellison Tarzan Brown was killed by a group of white teenagers and never found any justice but we can keep him alive by telling the story of his legacy and running like dancing is another sacred thing for our people you know mind over matter they often say when you run and for us running is like going to church and there are so many incredible Narragansetts today that are smart, that are talented, and they simply need a platform to be seen. So I thank you guys for giving me this platform to be able to talk with you. Yeah, and I just love what you've said there in terms of like that fight for visibility, because yes, you wanna fight for the visibility of your struggles, but also, 
to have visibility of your successes. And I think sometimes people miss that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so, yeah. so much for thank you so much being here. And joining Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to the Now What Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. You can find us on social media at the Now What Pod. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your story matters and you do too.